0: The comfortable amongst us are needed in the change equation, so desperately, for change to be sustainable, to be at scale, to be accelerated, to address the very real pain and inequities in our society. Those of us who sit in a certain place in the system, we must activate, we must utilize what we have. And then the neat thing about this is it does not need to be threatening. This is not a loss, this is not scarcity, this is not Oh my goodness, I'm giving up something so somebody else can have something. It is not that. You know, looking at the abundance. We all have abundance, number one. But some of us have certain kinds of abundance that we've taken for granted, that we enjoy the benefits of every day, that is very accessible to us. Sharing that abundance does not mean less for us. It sort of magnifies, it accelerates, it multiplies, I think.
1: Hi, my name is Nadia Nagamutu. Business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organisational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to companies' bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organisations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organisation that they find the answer to this question, to make sure that each employee is not only supported, but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace, from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier, and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello, and a huge welcome to season four of Why Care. My name is Nadia Nagamutu and I am your host. As the season kickoff show goes, this has to be one of the finest yet. I am delighted to welcome one of the most influential thought leaders in the DEI field, Jennifer Brown. When I first met Jennifer, we hit it off instantly and a half hour conversation led to her agreeing to join me on Why Care and for me to do a takeover of her podcast show, The Will to Change. If you didn't catch it, I had an incredibly powerful conversation with Dr. Pippa Grange and Errol Amara-Seqeira on The Will to Change, episode 260. Jennifer is an award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, diversity and inclusion consultant, and author. She is the founder and chief executive of Jennifer Brown Consulting, where they design workplace strategies and educational programming that have been implemented by some of the biggest companies and nonprofits in the US and around the world. Jennifer is three times author. Including the best selling book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader Your Role in Creating Cultures of Belonging Where Everyone Can Thrive, which was named one of Catalyst's five must read books on workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion in 2021. The second edition was released in October 2022 and goes deeper into the complex topics of identity, privilege, and equity. In our conversation, we talk about the discomfort that inclusive leadership triggers in people and how to overcome the fear associated with scarcity for those who feel DEI will mean they lose out. Jennifer talks about building community and welcoming everyone into the conversation and what DEI practitioners need to do differently in order to help create that. We talk about the different stages of the inclusive leadership journey as set out in her book and where people tend to feel really challenged and uncomfortable. There is so much to learn from this one conversation alone. Enjoy. Hello, Jennifer. It is such a pleasure to welcome you to Y-Care. Thank you so much
0: for joining me. Thank you. I'm so excited to be in dialogue with you and learn together. Oh, my goodness. So anyone who's anyone in the diversity, equity,
1: inclusion world will know you because personally, I think you're famous. I've really had over 20 years <laughs> of Jennifer Brown Consulting and doing incredible work in this field so for me it's an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you and learn from you so thank you and now obviously I know a lot about you but just in case there are any people listening out there who might not know your background might not know how you came into the DEI work uh, that you do how you came to set up Jennifer Brown Consulting it'd be great if you could just give us an overview
0: Well, in my 20s, I was heavy into nonprofits. I really wanted to make a difference. I gravitated towards anything that would have an impact. And I did community justice and organizing and um, advocacy for communities in the Boston area. And I really felt really very fulfilled with that work. But at the same time, I was always singing. So every night I would be out at some rehearsal or other. I was in the Boston Symphony Chorus actually, and went traveled all over the world with them. And it was so incredible. And um, having grown up in a musical family and always having this interest and curiosity about what would a career be like for me in that field, I ended up moving to New York City to pursue it full time. And I got a master's in operatic vocal performance from Manhattan School of Music. And again, really felt I was right in the sweet spot, You know, having dreams of making my living as a performer And um, unfortunately, through the course of operatic training, I ended up injuring my voice. I'm not sure why to this day it happened to me, well I kind of know now, but uh, at the time it felt really, really heartbreaking. And to remedy what uh, the injury that I had from overtraining, I think, I had to get surgery. And that happened several times, several surgeries to repair my voice. And recovering from that uh, entails that you are silent for a period of weeks. So that things can heal. But you know, what comes out when you finally make a sound is something that is unrecognizable, of course. And you need a lot of speech therapy to bring it back. And I which I did, but ultimately I would realize that performing eight shows a week, for example, or singing, you know, Aria after aria was not going to be in the cards for me from a stamina perspective. And I would need to seek another purpose in life. So while that was a really hard time in my life that I still get really emotional about what could have been, I actually reinvented subsequently. I felt, followed some advice. Performers, Many performers find their way to the world of training and development and learning and development because many of us were very empathetic. We like connecting with people. We like performing in a way, but in the sense of teaching and facilitating dialogue So I followed that advice I got from some mentors and ended up getting a second degree in organizational change and leadership, and feeling again like I had discovered something that would play a very important role in my life. And indeed, it would. I would pivot into that field. I would have some roles in HR as a training and development leader, and then subsequently starting Jennifer Brown Consulting almost 20 years ago at this point, and beginning to build my team and our client work starting in team development and effectiveness and leadership, but pivoting into DEI because I'm also a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, but I was closeted in the workplace and always struggled with coming out and being fully authentic and aligned and feeling very, again, very passionate as an advocate in, on that topic on a personal level to create and be a part of creating a workplace that was kinder and more welcoming for people in that community. And these were very early days. I didn't realize I could do DEI as a living. I didn't know even what it was. But these worlds had kind of come together with my OD background, and leadership background, and my personal advocacy for LGBTQ plus inclusion in the workplace. Things kind of came together, and I realized this thing called, and at the time it was really diversity, barely inclusion, and certainly not equity or belonging. But I realized, I think I want to do this, (laughs) this thing. And I want to you know, direct Jennifer Brown Consulting in that way. And so I would build it, as I said, build the team, build our expertise, um, begin to work with really incredible clients and feel that all of these pieces of who I am were sort of coming together in this magical, powerful way and very fulfilling way, indeed, because it was a, it's so personal to me that I tackle helping and, and I'm helpful in solving these problems. Because they plagued me and I was very aware and still am very aware that they plague so many people that is underrepresented in the workplace that doesn't have a seat at the table. So I would build the company and um, I'd like to say at this point in hindsight, I have the clarity to say that I was meant to use my voice, just not as a singer. And um, it's an incredible time to be in this work. And I, I feel this sort of the culmination of a lot of the pieces of who I am and what I care about and what I'm dedicated to. And really what I want my legacy to be, which is to leave the workplace and employers better than the place that I experienced as a younger person, you know, a place where we can all thrive, a place where we can feel seen and heard and valued for all of who we are. I love that story. I love how
1: it started from a career in singing or a hope of this big career in singing. And you had to kind of straight off that path and find a new purpose. And my goodness, what an incredible purpose and something that's so personal to you. And actually, it brings me to one of my first questions that I had for you because I've got both editions of your book, I have to say. The first was brilliant and then the second, I feel just has more of you in it. Which so is equally as brilliant, offers the reader more more examples and I, you know, I love it for that. But I was interested in that new chapter that's in your second edition. And I can hear you sharing your story. I can hear your voice when I read it. And that's lovely. Actually, it's very comforting. And the path that you've taken to becoming an inclusive leader. So what changed for you over the last four years from edition one to edition two
0: that made you feel like, actually, this is a chapter that I really want to write and share? Thank you for saying that about my voice too. Speaking of voice, Weaving that into business books is not something a lot of authors do, but it is so important to share my diversity story. It is one of our teachings, and I need to practice that. And so, sometimes when I am writing, I am writing as a teacher, but not as me. So I love what you just said, which is that I need to be in there. I needed to go back and actually weave it in, because sometimes we can hide. Sometimes it is easier to not kind of explore and lay our own work bare, and say, write about a concept and then say, this is when it really came to life for me, or here's how this landed for me, or here's how I talk about it, or here's how I weave my own story into my teachings, because this work in particular, as you know, is so personality driven, lived experience driven, and so much a part of my credibility and my authority means that I need to unpack my journey, I think. That enables people to trust me. You know, I think we cannot teach this just from the head, but we have to teach it from the heart. And we have to not just talk about other people, but we have to talk about ourselves. And I have to talk to my about myself as a learner. And so, my learning over the last couple of years has been to become more bold and courageous in naming all of the identities I carry. And I am still a work in progress, and I want to put that out there importantly, because I think it allows people to relax around me and say, Well, she's doing that, I can do that too, that's what I hope anyway, setting that tone and creating the psychological safety to, as I unpack, others will unpack with me and alongside me, and we will maybe go to some places that have scared us in the past. And a place that scares us that you are talking about is the question of privileges, the question of the tailwinds that have invisibly and silently sped us along. That not we don't take those for granted, but we actually really look at them, talk about them, uh, utilize that, as a way of fueling our allyship and utilize it as the way to normalize the speaking of something that's not spoken. And it's not only not spoken, but it, it strikes terror into the hearts of many people and many leaders. And I know, I know this because it, it has done that to me. And so as I write, it, you know, writing a book is a way of healing. It's a way of clarifying what you're most here to communicate. And what's most most important in what you want to teach and what you want to be in service of, and that has evolved. I love this saying: like comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and I think in my early days, I was never like the, the the sort of in your face activist, but I absolutely wanted to afflict the comfortable. And to me, in my early days, afflict the comfortable meant maybe you know I'm just broad strokes here as a female cisgender female. It was men, <laughs> male male identified individuals. It was maybe heterosexual straight people who were not allies, right? It's my sort of early self-activist. But I recognizing, coming to recognize I am in the comfortable category. At the same time as I am in the afflicted category. I'm in all of those things. Yeah. So it's this beautiful realization that I want to challenge the comfortable in all of us, in myself. And I want to invite us to walk that path together because the comfortable amongst us are needed in the change equation so desperately for change to be sustainable, to be at scale, to be accelerated, to address the very real pain and inequities in our society. Those of us who sit in a certain place in the system We must activate, we must utilize what we have, and then the neat thing about this is it does not need to be threatening. This is not a loss, this is not scarcity, this is not, oh my goodness, I am giving up something so somebody else can have something. It is not that. You know, Looking at the abundance, we all have abundance, number one, but some of us have certain kinds of abundance that we have taken for granted, that we enjoy the benefits of every day, that is very accessible to us. Sharing that abundance does not mean less for us. It sort of magnifies, it accelerates, it multiplies, I think. And it actually is what it's there for. I think I have been born in the the composition that I'm in, because there's so much I can do with what I have that actually enables me to grow and transform. And also, when shared with others, enables the transformation of other things, other people, other systems. So, you know, this is not scarcity, (laughs) but it's so hard that you understand this, Nadia, to explain this, when you're coming up against so much fear that's been generated by the way that we've spoken about this, the way that we've gone about the work, and I take accountability for that. Like, I think that somehow it has been communicated, and I'll use that, it has been communicated, we as a field, somehow we've sort of perhaps over-rotated to Talking about the affliction, talking about the afflicted. We're in the afflicted, right? It, just to continue that. And that can be so intoxicating and so energizing and so kind of in our feelings. And it's so, such a sense of belonging to like, I don't blame any of us at all for seeking community, for finding our voice together, for making noise together. Good. Like I've been doing that my whole life. Absolutely. But you have to kind of sit here in 2023 and say, where are we? Let's take. Let's back up. Let's say, okay, who is feeling alienated? Who's feeling sort of left out? Who's feeling unclear about what they can do? Who's feeling unworthy of the work? Who's wondering what space they fill in this work? I don't want anyone to be wondering that. We can get where we need to go if anybody's wondering that. So every day these days, I wake up and think, how can I inform that? Because I found my place but I've only found that because I've been in this work for so long. And you say, who are my people? Like, who's the audience that really needs to see me and hear me, and I can reach in a really unique way? And I've sort of come to this place of, well, I could serve everyone, but where I really am needed is here. And I think rewriting the book with that in mind, and with the maturity that I've gained over the last couple of years, and the humble journey I've gone of, wow, I have been blessed with so much. I feel called to make that clearer for other people and to invite them to join me.
1: You've covered so much in that. My head's spinning a little bit into, you know. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> what I love about that is this kind of belief that many people working in the space of DEI, any professionals have sort of coming at it with, you know, we must fight the good fight. We've been done to and they've done wrongly done upon and really just feeling that s- aggrieved sense of injustice, which clearly exists. And historically, we can't deny that injustice has taken place in all aspects of minority groups around the world. But to know that just because you might experience that in one aspect, one part of your identity, that there are other aspects of you that other people might have grievance about due to history. Because that's what I loved about this particular chapter. And what you've just said is that if we home in on the one or multiple aspects of ourselves that feel aggrieved and feel like we need to fight for justice and ignore the parts where we benefit, where we have some privilege, then that serves no one.
0: And I just want to say that invisible, there's so many more diversity dimensions than race and gender. I always say this when I'm keynoting over the last couple of years, the reasons this has really hit home is we poll our audiences and they say I list 10 different diversity dimensions that we typically think of them, race, gender, gender identity, socioeconomic background, religion, spirituality, mental health, parenting, caregiving. And I put this list up, I poll people, and literally the thing that is the most experienced just by the numbers is mental health challenges. So every time you ask that, we have been having very important but sort of Limited focus and discussion, and identified certain needs, but there are so much, many other needs going on. And as a consultant, of course, I think what would that structure look like to support all of that? I mean, immediately, like you, I go there, I say, so we've supported identity-based groups, for example, and communities in the workplace who are underrepresented. Very clear, and we understand the sort of scope of that problem. We know we can put our hands around. It. <laughs> now, the solve is not as not as easy, and I wish we were further along, of course, but there's so much more to do to big that make the tent bigger and to really address, especially the issues that have been coming up over the last couple of years, because I actually don't think in my keynotes three years ago I would have been getting that same result. So the landscape has shifted, and we do need to update our approach, and we do need to walk and chew gum at the same time in terms of continuing to focus on some of those evergreen pain points that traditional DEI strategies have addressed. We cannot at all take our eye off that ball. And we need to expand so that, by the way, we address what's really going on for folks. But also, in doing so, we are going to welcome so many new people into this conversation. I think that's going to do wonder in saying, well, that's their issue. That's not my issue. They're going to do the work. I'm not. This doesn't have to do with me. That's the over there. Or I don't agree right? Because then we get this whole like, sort of arm's length thing that's going on. So I'm always trying to use the data and my own sort of intuition to say, no, 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 you're part of (laughs) you are included in this. You are included in this. And you maybe you've never verbalized that maybe you haven't ever understood that, for example, you don't even know what neurodiversity is, but you are neurodiverse, (laughs) like, or you've never thought that part of your life or how you grew up has anything to do with this whole field. It does. It very much does. And could we, you know, be expansive enough to be inclusive? If we can't do it, I'm not sure anyone else can do it. It's up to us. Like, we do this work. We call ourselves practitioners. But really, how are we letting our biases inform who we welcome in? Yeah. Right? Absolutely. How do we choose to call someone out instead of call someone in, believing that, Perhaps there's a aha moment that will shift the trajectory that someone's on in terms of their own ally journey. Like, we have to believe that that's possible for people, and we have to continue to kind of hold ourselves accountable, I think, to not dismiss, you know, and not other. I don't know if we've taken our own medicine adequately. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's a fair shout. I think, yeah. I, I honestly think that as a DEI practitioner, and it's very easy to go for the more tangible areas of diversity and inclusion, those characteristics that you read out, and work with that, because it's not easy, but it's easier to work with that.
0: Especially if you're like, not very experienced. I think there's so many new folks coming into the field. So maybe what I flashed to when you say, said that was, well, so I'm, I'm hanging out my shingle, right? What is the known? What is the map that we have? It is those well, well-marked well paths, right? <laughs> But at the same time, like it's up to us though to go on the lesser known paths or to or to literally bushwhack. So I would encourage folks who are new in the work, like, think about what's not charted yet. Like think about what you can locate and begin to explain and make clear, right? Because there you're right, there is a lot of well trod areas in this work. I mean, and I'm frustrated because I'm still looking at the same data and not seeing a lot of change. So I also think we need new thinking, we need new explorers, we need new people who are unafraid to, you know, go into the thicket. Absolutely. And we have a lot of paths to put on the map yet in this work. I agree. I'm interested in your book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader,
1: right? And you talk about this new type of leadership that's needed. You're moving away from what we know traditionally is seen and rewarded for in organizations in terms of leadership qualities. So, you know, demonstrating strength, composure, charisma, confidence. And you talk about, and you role model it beautifully as well in the book, but you talk about vulnerability, how you talk about demonstrating empathy and being purpose driven and socially responsible. And I'm curious. In the leaders that you facilitate those conversations with, when you're trying to get them to shift out of this quite fixed, in a way, belief system about what leadership is, what is it that you do to facilitate that openness to embracing a different type of leadership that's needed
0: for inclusion? It's really hard. I met with audiences that are all different places in that journey. And it's also complex because every senior leader audience is full of individuals who are at different places. Of course. So, you know this, right? When you facilitate a group, you're sort of like, do I shoot for the middle? Do I work with the you know early adopters? Do I ignore the resistors? Like, yeah, it's all, there's so many choices in how to approach. And this is the creativity and the art of the art and science of this work. The art, to me, is sensing where a group is and where the individuals are in that group. That could be in very different places. And and, and how do you kind of serve each of those folks, because each leader influences the hundreds, thousands, depending on the size of the organization. So it, it's sort of a conundrum in change management and also facilitation and also design. I think we're all designers. I mean, we walk in and you have two hours with a group of people. You know, how do you design that time? But your question was sort of, what do you use in those moments? And I sometimes don't really know how I do things. And I it's a, a blur. Um <laughs> when you sort of feel like you're channeling something and you know you're working from intuition and that's not always conscious choices or you have a plan and you throw out the plan (laughs) happens sometimes too i try to generate empathy first of all try to be vulnerable myself i try to role model my own journey i try to humanize the parts of me like we've been talking about right so i try to really prudentialize myself also and i don't mean my bio (laughs) But I mean as the learner. I mean as the identities that I carry. I also nobody ever guesses I'm LGBTQ. So I think there's a moment there of bias that I can point out and a bit an aha moment right at the beginning. So it sort of puts a learner in the unstable place. The instability I think is where the learning happens, right? That's the growth mindset. That's the oh goodness. Like, okay, I better pay attention. <laughs> I'm I'm on the edge here. I'm on my learning edge. Because I made a, I already made an assumption about who Jennifer is. So I think this is why telling our diversity stories, however scary that may be, and what's invisible about us in particular, if we can, in addition to what's visible, such a powerful tool. That's why I really invest a lot in that and think a lot about it. But then, you know, some people love the business case. Some people need to see the facts and figures. Some people, I like kind of painting this picture of the changes in the future workforce and saying... And reminding leaders that we only lead, like, at the privilege of leading is that others will follow. Like, the, like we're only leading in a certain context, and we're considered leaders in a certain context. And if our context is changing, and we are timed because we're not actually really in tune with that context, that context is the changing in our world, the, the wants and needs and demands and expectations of incoming and early in career folks who we are there to lead, technically, if we're missing the boat on that because of fear, because we're not resonating, because we're not doing our work, because we're making assumptions that we know how to lead and we've been leading in the same way for 20 years, I think a lot of our leaders are very destabilized. Yeah. So if I can name that and say, I think I know how you feel right now. And let's have a conversation about how what got you here won't get you there, to quote Marshall Goldsmith. Yeah. Let's acknowledge that if anyone is being challenged right now with who you are, it's this generation of leaders. Yes. I think that learning curve is steep, steep, steep. It's tough sometimes, right? (laughs) I'm in that group.
1: When I'm in a room and I see... The struggle, you can visibly see that struggle sometimes in yes. these leaders that you're working with. They hear you, yeah, but they're not processing what you're telling them because there's almost like a barrier that's preventing them because they've got such a deep belief system about how they lead, which is constantly been reinforced all of their leadership life that they are an amazing leader, that they are, you know, (laughs) they've been told they're inclusive. They've had loads of 360 feedback that's told them some amazing things about how brilliant they are, you know, and they've got all of this proof, this evidence, right, that they are amazing at what they do. So, Uh, sort of like, they look at me like, I hear you, Nadia, but what you're telling me... I'm doing great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It doesn't work, tally up, with the leader that I know I am. And, you know, and also some of the messages that, you know, It almost feels conflicted messages. So what I'm saying is, in order to create a sense of belonging, you need to see people's difference. You need to acknowledge and see them for who they are and really have this open conversation with them to understand that their experience is different to yours and to be open and curious to embracing that understanding and to then do something about it. And there's this sort of perplexed look on their face when they're sort of thinking, okay, so what you're telling me is... I need to treat people differently and I need to see that they're different and that will help them feel like they're not different. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of.
0: Don't you ever feel like you get wrapped around the axle of the conversation and sort of like this circular, like, wait a second, like what am I actually saying and does it make sense? I know, if we can hone in on where are they in pain? Like, where, where do they, it, maybe it's just hard to really access that because the ego is so strong. I love referring back to how the companies in Good to Great, remember that book? Yes. And any book that's been written, right, in the last couple of decades about, we you know, fabulous companies. It's like, what's happened to all those companies? <laughs> like, right? I think the sort right. of relevance, right? The, the longevity of a leader, you have to kind of know that if you're not uncomfortable on a regular basis, you're probably not leading, you're not growing, and you're probably missing that the ground is shifting under you. And the very comfort that I suppose you have, you can't rest on your laurels. You have to question, okay, really good leaders might get all that feedback you just mentioned, but they're probably asking themselves, that can't be all theres there is. There's Right. Nobody tells the leader the truth. They know that so much yeah. smoke is being <laughs> blown. They know. They know. Like people have a vested interest in like praising them, and the yeah. truth is really hard to get at. And this is why I think as leaders, if you're worth your salt, you step outside of your vertical. You put yourself in places where you don't know the language, you are not one of many, you are the only, you are conspicuous, you may not feel welcome or welcomed. You are doing your own work because you are intrinsically motivated to look beyond all of those incentives you just mentioned. And if we can I think tap into that destabilization, both personal but also sort of in our environment, like what we don't know and what's around the corner that we are not seeing, how can I sort of invest in that muscle? more regularly so that I'm not actually believing all the th- the positive things I'm hearing, because I know it, it's rigged. And it's also, by the way, if you're a person of great privilege, it's also rigged. I mean, you're not going to know. You're actually not going to know how you are really experienced as a leader, unless you really push beyond the boundaries of how you are measured. Yeah, You are not going to know until you go, for example, into the black affinity group and say, hey, I want to start attending, I want to listen, I want to learn, I want to be mentored, you are going to have your mind blown and your heart blown. You go into the LGBTQ group, you spend time with people, you begin to spend your time with people that don't share your lived experience. I promise you will not think everything is okay. Yeah. But the question is, I think to your point, it's like, how do we measure people? What gets measured gets done. Yes, we can frog march people to this. But the thing I really wake up feeling wanting so much is for this to sort of bubble up organically in people. Like, I want people to want to do this work. I call my podcast The Will to Change. How can we spring that seedling that is growing in leaders at all ages that we can encourage, which is the questioning of the self, the humility. You asked about inclusive leadership competencies. It's questioning what you believe. It's It is openness, it is curiosity, it is low ego. right? It is absolutely kind of being in service of growth, and it is talking about what you do not know. It is talking about what you have learned that bothers you, that disturbs you, that makes you angry, that makes you regretful, that you wish you would known, that you wished you had done differently. Imagine if leaders communicated from that place. And also, here is how I grew up in privilege. Here is how I was protected here how I was safe. Here's the resources that were made available to me. And I've in my life never really seen those for the assets that they are. And here's what I'm doing with them now, because I understand that that's capital, just like professional capital, financial capital. That's capital. And capital is the fuel of inclusion. Capital is the fuel of allies. Absolutely. To share what we have. And that, and like, back to our beginning of our conversation, you know, it doesn't mean less. That's the beautiful thing about it. I don't think it operates. And capitalism tells us there's a finite amount. That's what it tells us. But you and I know there's all kinds of other realities going on beyond that. Like, there's so much beauty and generosity, for example, in our world. We know, like, people are, competitors are generous with each other. Yeah. I see it all the time. See the rising tide lifting all the boats. We compare notes. We support each other. We share resources. We show up, and we're I think living into a different. I don't know if it's a version of capitalism or if it's some whatever it is, but it's the most humane part of this system that is extremely harmful. But it's the only system we are in, and it's the only system we know. Many of us. So this is to me a real bright light in the world, like our world. I just wish I could communicate the transformation that's available to all of us, you know, to step into thinking about things differently, to seeing ourselves differently. And then we've got to have an organizational system to reward that and not be account cross purposes with that. I think to your point, as leaders, everything I've ever heard and been measured on is here. Yes. And now I'm looking at this over here. It's like, no, this needs to be integrated. Right. <laughs> so that's our work, right Not Yeah, we need to, you know, help companies build that. It's hard,
1: essentially rewriting some of the fundamental processes and systems and ways of measuring success in the organisation. That's right, and to rethink it completely. And often, organisations and those senior leaders who are the decision makers on this, they can't visualise it. They can't see how impactful that rewriting of those processes and the reward systems, how that could lead to a better organisation, a more inclusive organisation. Um I think that's definitely one of the barriers that we
0: face in this profession. Challenge of messaging, challenge, you said visualization. I mean, I just don't know if we've done a good enough job of painting that picture of what's possible and including everyone and inspiring everyone, honestly, yeah. around that. I mean, I know who's inspired, which is those of us who've been missing. Right. I get that. Right. And and we need to see ourselves in that. You know, we Absolutely. But how might we expand that and make it more expansive so that everyone can see what is in it for them, you know, to expand this whole effort and dialogue and community. And So I hope everyone that is listening to this, how would you answer that question? Like what would you, how would you describe and help people visualize what is possible for them? And when I say them, I mean all of us, everyone. We need to crystallize that and then we need to scaffold around it and build it and, and then build the bridge to get there where it's a crossing that's not terrifying, that's not hazardous, that's not that perceived to be so risky. Because I say perceived because I don't think it's risky, but I think there's a perception that it is.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's the unknown. Yeah. Um, yeah what we're talking about here is something that you and I don't even True. really <laughs> you know, have a handle on in terms of what that looks like. And until it's been done, until organisations can feel it as well as see it and see the tangible outputs, the the real kind of like, you know, okay, I see the benefit now. I see what's happening as a result of this. So there's a lot of work to do in this space from an organisational perspective to support for all leaders to feel like they are part of this conversation. I'd like to talk about well, the foundation really uh, in terms of your book, which is the Inclusive Leader Continuum. Okay, so we talk about four phases. So, unaware, aware, active, and advocate. And you have a chapter on each of these. And just for those who haven't yet read your book, and I do highly, highly recommend uh, this, uh, Jennifer's book to anyone who is listening. But for those who haven't, can you just briefly just explain those four phases? And just give some light as to where you think, is there a particular point in these phases where leaders tend to get most stuck
0: or where you see leaders finding it more challenging? They get stuck at each transition, but lucky me, I get to mainly work with leaders who get stuck between aware and active. I think they're somewhere in aware phase two, which is the, okay, now I know what I don't know um, versus unaware, which is, I don't know what I don't know. Yes. And certainly, the, the awakening is tough from unaware to aware, of course, right? That's what we've been mainly talking about, right? Which is Overcoming resistance and apathy and skepticism, cynicism, exclusion, all that stuff. But crossing then from, okay, now I know what I don't know, which is aware, phase two, and I'm sort of deepening my knowledge, I'm trying to learn. There's the difficulty in that, it's overwhelming, It's can be shame-inducing, guilt-inducing, a lot of reflection, a lot of overwhelm. But then the crossing to action is tricky, especially in these times which don't, I think, tolerate the way we learn, the way we need to experiment and fail forward in order to learn. I don't think, as much as we talk a big game about growth mindset in companies, we do not apply that to our own inclusive leader journey. So when we move from, okay, I've learned these things and aware phase 2, and now I'm going to move to active phase three and I'm going to begin to speak differently. I'm going to begin to open new conversations. I'm going to begin to talk about what I don't know. I'm going to begin to maybe be vulnerable in terms of my own storytelling around my identities. I'm going to start to hold myself accountable and, you know, train myself to notice biases around me and not just notice what's going on, you know, but actually speak it and follow up and address. Right. That's active phase three. So people get stuck in the perfectionism trap between aware and active. They get stuck in the not knowing and not having mastery, if you will, of knowing like how something's going to turn out because like you just said there's so much we don't even know. We can't really see the other side of the shore over that bridge. It's the future and we can kind of imagine and visualize and and hope. So I think that that we as humans, we like to know where we're going to land. We like to know and predict what will happen. Oh, totally. But are we are so cynical about what's going to happen. I remember coming out, I always think about this. I think when we come out as members of the LGBTQ plus community, we're terrified, but often it goes better than we think. <laughs> and so to me, that tells me something about human behavior. I mean, that's true for me, that it, it almost always went better. So what does that tell me about humans? We're such, we're, 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 and I'm a glass half full person, and I still thought it was going to go horribly. So I just think we're we're very cynical. We don't give ourselves enough credit. We don't give others enough credit. We don't believe that things may turn out differently and better, and something may be discovered that we can't even imagine. I just don't know if we're very good at that. So and we're a, li- a bit lazy when it comes to discipline. And discipline of inclusive leadership is is doing a little effort right? Is eating better, it's exercising, it's saving for the future. It's, you know, it's all of those things that maybe aren't fun, but that develop our ability to lift more weight over time with less soreness, right? That we gain in strength. We are more comfortable. We have mastery of how to say it, what to say and when, and what's the impact that it's going to have. We have like multiple examples under our belt that learned from, and that haven't been perfect, but that have enriched us in terms of our own self-knowledge, and have also contributed to our skill. And so that fourth phase then is to be skilled, brave, courageous, extremely sensitive to how to use our voice, when to use our voice, what we can do, where we can influence. And so the advocate phase four is the fearless, the resilient, the exact to me, I think that is what we've calibrated. Who am I in this system? Where am I an insider? Where am I an outsider? What can I leverage? What can I push on? What can I do that's going to make others uncomfortable so that they will grow? Like, how can I role model what getting comfortable and uncomfortable looks like? And then how can I create more space to move people up the continuum? So that's really advocate phase four. So where do people get stuck? I think between the aware and active is the place. And I know exactly why. And I think we need to invest in that and hold a lot of space and be super gracious with ourselves and others as we learn, and create enough kind of resiliency and flexibility and patience and forgiveness and all that stuff that we need, like that graciousness with each other so that we can grow. We all need to return to the fact that somebody has been gracious with us as we've learned. That means that we can turn around and reciprocate with that. And I don't think a single human has ever known all the things perfectly. So whenever we get on our high horse and say, Why didn't you know that? How could you do that? That harmed others. That is inexcusable, you are canceled. Or you don't know, you need to sit down and not contribute because whatever, you are too privileged. That is destructive. While it may feel wonderful in the moment, it may feel satisfying, it may feel like I am in control and now I have power it is a short-term win. You might win a battle, but I hate the battle and the war. We need to have another metaphor for that. But it's like winning the battle, but not the war. It's like, let's have a long-term view on nurturing the journey of others because they, as they travel that journey, they can help and be a part of and contribute in a way where we need them to contribute. I only look at it that way. I don't see bad people. We've all said something, we've uttered microaggressions, we've all been there. So, But what we do about that can come from a place of kindness. Sometimes, people are irredeemable. Sometimes, but that is the rare… Yeah, I think that is extremely rare. And particularly in the workplace, I don't think we need to be making judgments on that people are bad people. I, I just don't think there is a place for that. I think we have to focus on where are learners, let's meet them where they are at, let's meet ourselves where we are at, let's look at ourselves as learners. I think that energy is so much more collaborative. It's so much more, hey, we're we're sort of peers like in different places, but we're all kind of attempting to cross this bridge together and help each other get across it and, and valuing each of the way that we do see the future. Because if we ignore that and we tune it out or we judge it, we will sort of squander the opportunity that exists in each of us to contribute to change.
1: Yeah you covered so much there. And I, as you were talking, I was thinking of this analogy of like riding a bicycle where, you know, my littlest, she's only two. And, you know, she didn't really know that a bike existed when she found, you know, <laughs> She was completely unaware that bicycles existed. They were a thing. And then, of course, we gave her a bicycle for Christmas, a little balance bike. And, you know, and then she's really unsteady on it. You know, she's kind of standing and walking, you know, on this bicycle Cute. thinking that she's riding it. Oh, You know, it is, you know, really <laughs> awkward. Yeah. <laughs> And there's this sort of gradual awareness as she sort of learns to then kind of start doing it and start, you know, but that moment where she actually lifts her feet off and starts pedaling, or, you know, is going to be a real moment for her where she suddenly starts being active in her, you know, and practicing, right. And it's that practice that you're talking about. But yet, no matter how many times she might do that same run up and down the garden, as soon as we take her to the park, it's a completely different environment. It's a completely different context, right? So she has to practice that again and she might fall off. She might go the wrong way and etc. And then as she gets older, I'm sure she might try different terrains and mountains and goodness knows what on her bike. And, you know, I sort of feel like, as you were talking, that sort of cycle of unaware, aware, active advocate, it was similar to that. You know, it's, she might be the best cyclist in the world one day, and yet She still might get a sore bum because she's ridden it over bumpy terrain, you know, and it would still be really uncomfortable. Or you may like
0: be a road racer, but you're not a mountain biker. So you've got competency on one side, but you don't on the other. And that's always going to be true, even for like an Olympic level person. So like, there's always more. I love the analogy. We could like riff (laughs) on that all day. It's like the bike is sort of the bike. It's like your skill. And then the bike is the equipment. And the equipment is, I think, the ingredients of the self, right? It's the bike we're riding. Like, yeah. So I'm riding the bike of me. And the bike of me has these identities, right? And and these abilities. And, you know, these awareness and the Johari window, right? It's known to self, not known to self, known to others, right? There's always the curtain that can be pulled aside, right? There's always something more to be revealed about who we are and but the bike is the equipment and, and then our ability to ride it is the skill and the competency. And those two things when they're married perfectly, they create an incredible athlete. Um, and yet incredible athletes in one arena, like still like I'm a classically trained musician and I can't play jazz and it kills me and I love it, but I can't, I don't have competency. Yeah. So I'm mean, aware, but I wouldn't say I'm an active uh, around that, but I'm in deep appreciation of, uh, you know, and I might dabble in whatever lessons, but I'm going to feel like a beginner again. And that's hard for somebody who's so highly trained in another way. Of that analogy of leader to been They've developed a competency with a certain set of circumstances. And you, if you're a good leader, you know those circumstances are changing. <laughs> you just know. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not really human to say, you know what? I need to build a new plane while I'm flying the old one. I need to be building a new one. And I need to really understand that equipment. Right. And I don't know what that looks like. Absolutely. Oh,
1: Jennifer, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Thank you for all the work that you do in this space. Thank you for your book. Thank you for all you've given in the book. And uh, for this time with me, I really appreciate
0: it. I appreciate you. I
1: loved this. Thank you. And now people can follow you on social media. Where's the best place for them to touch base with you, to follow you? Yes, I hear and
0: I'm everywhere. So <laughs> it's not hard to find. But um, So look us up on LinkedIn and absolutely connect with me on Jennifer Brown. Uh, consulting is the name of my company. So Jennifer Brown Consulting, I have an incredible team. We do this work every day together. Thank goodness. And then Jennifer Brown Speaks is my speaker and author website. So you can find out more specific info on that. And then uh, Instagram, I'm at Jennifer Brown Speaks. On Twitter, I'm at Jennifer Brown. Whatever, I forget. Facebook, Jennifer Brown Consulting. And ping us if you have any questions on info at Jennifer Brown Consulting. We'd love to hear from you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank
1: you, Nadia. That concludes episode 31 of Why Care. I love the concept of afflicting the comfortable, which is so aligned with what I'm discussing in my book, Beyond Discomfort. As inclusive leaders, we need to be ready to role model vulnerability and sit with discomfort in the knowledge that that is what being a leader means. Do let Jennifer and I know what you thought of today's show. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu. As always, I really appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with your friends and family. Huge thanks to Mauro Kenji for editing this podcast and Glory Olubori for supporting with the show notes and getting it out there on social media.